welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio device. My name is Chris, and this week I am going to be looking about looking at something that sounds very, very scary. Uh, I don't want you to be alarmed though, but uh, the Earth's poles are moving due to climate change. Ooh. Yeah, it's crikey. It is. It is a kind of big effect. It is something that shows, like the the. I guess, how much effect that climate change can have. Not on its own, something to worry about. There are like a lot of obviously very serious consequences like, you know, reefs bleaching and that kind of stuff. Yeah, don't, so don't panic about the poles moving. It just is, a, is, I guess, shows how much effect we are having on the earth. It's just a minor inconvenience, is, is what you're well, saying. Yeah, yeah. Look, but it's, <laughs> it is actually very interesting, particularly because, you know, there are different kinds of ways that the, the poles, magnetic and otherwise, can move around. So I'm going to have a bit of a look at, how? yeah, how unstable our poles are anyway. Have poles like moved before? Is this a is this it, a thing? It is a thing. You'll have to you'll you'll find out. Oh. It is it is a thing. Yes. Stay tuned. Yes. Uh, Stu, what do you got for us? Well, I was going to have a little quick look at uh, transgenic crops and uh, actually investigate how old they might be. So we're talking like GMOs and yeah, GMs kind of... and and maybe that they're a bit older than we might have thought. Really? Ooh. That possibly we didn't invent them. Oh, okay. Well, mm. that's inter- well, we've kind of invented crops, I imagine. We did invent crops, but yeah, we didn't necessarily invent GM. Okay, interesting. Mm. And speaking of genetic modification, I believe Claire has a story about synthetic life, artificial life, not the um the computerized variety, but the bacterial variety of um yeah, basically building um, organisms from scratch out and of bits and pieces. Possibly super villains. We're not sure. And possibly super <laughs> villains, but we are we're making no firm allegations on that part. Anyway, yes, on with the show. <laughs> Okay, so yes, I don't want to alarm anybody, but um, the the polls are moving. Not the not the opinion polls, not the electoral polls, but the the not people from the Poland. AFL polls. No, 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 the, the the north and south poles of the earth. Oh, now, that's a bit more worrying. Yeah, now um, it is a bit worrying, uh, but not as like I said, not as worrying as as you might think. It's not going to cause worldwide catastrophe. Um, it is associated with a worldwide. It is caused by a worldwide catastrophe. Let's put it that way, which is the climate change. Um, but I need to explain what this actually means because there are actually three kinds of polar shift related to the three kinds of poles that the Earth has. What you're all saying? What are the three kinds of polar shift? Well, there is the magnetic poles, the north and south magnetic pole. Yeah, um, and and they wander all over the place. Yeah, because uh, they're, so they're to do with the under the, under the under the earth where the molten core is moving around. Yeah, right? the the outer core of the earth, with the iron in the outer core of the earth, has a geodynamo that causes a magnetic field, and that kind of wobbles around the place. And so mm. the uh, yes, the the pole um, wanders around. It moves about between fifty five and sixty kilometers per year. Wow! And annoyingly, the south magnetic pole is not actually directly opposite the north magnetic pole. So I think your compasses, Stu, are probably not accurate at all. They're going to change direction and. They Damn don't it. point you in a linear fashion. I'll just so, have to use my GPS instead. You can do that. Um, then there is the celestial poles, which is basically a spot in the sky. And this is what kind of where the, the rotation Earth is pointing mm. it in the sky. Um, famously, like in Northern Hemisphere, it points at the, the North Star, Polaris. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's, you know, it's kind of indicated by the Southern Cross, that sort of thing. You've got to do a whole lot of things to 
get it to point to the south, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's it's it's. Um, I'll draw your diagram later. Um, but yeah, this is this That'd is something. This is uh, basically it moves due to what is known as precession of the equinoxes. It's popular name now. It's apparently axial precession, but precession of the equinoxes is what you've probably heard of. This has been known about for a long time, uh, mostly attributed to Hipparchus, a um, Greek guy in second century BC. Um, first explained by our good friend Isaac Newton, though, who did like all the, the dynamics of how it works. And essentially, it's the fact that the Earth is tilted at about 23.44 degrees to the to the, the plane of the ecliptic, I think it's called, uh, and the gravity of the sun and the moon acts on that and makes it kind of Wobble rotate around. yeah on its on that axis and that's in precess as it is it's currently it changes it because things aren't perfect at the current rate um the cycle is about twenty five thousand seven hundred seventy two years for do a full circle of its precession so there is that as well which you probably heard of but then there is the actual north and south pole on the earth and they move around as well and this is not talking about continents moving i'm talking about them actually moving relative to the surface of the earth the whole axis moving so the way to think of it is think about a top like a spinning top mm-hmm. okay so if you when you spin a top then you often don't when it starts off you're not doing it perfectly evenly perfectly straight it kind of wobbles a bit at the first and then it settles around to around rotating around its main axis essentially what that happens with the the earth you know it's not the earth is not perfectly even so it kind of wobbles around on its axis trying to sort things out and get into the correct um, fashion um, so there is quite a bit of wobbling it turns out um, there are some regular oscillations there is an annual oscillation due to things like winds and that kind of stuff there is something known as the chandler wobble um named after a guy called chandler i would imagine not from friends necessarily not not raymond chandler (laughs) no no and this one chandler wobble lasts has a has a period of 433 days so it's kind of over a year um a bit more than a year and it's no one's quite sure what it is i think there's some theories that it's to do with perhaps with you know against some atmospheric things some seismic things it could just be just a general wobble of things settling down it but it's 433 days it happens it's quite um, long it is it is quite long but then there is a kind of a general trend as well sort of a, a longer term trend and this is kind of what we're interesting because the oscillations they kind of even out but there is a longer term trend of the pole actually wandering now this is a fairly slow drift it's gone moved about since 1900 it's moved about 20 meters uh and this is essentially due to it's motion motions again in the within the earth itself within the core of the earth in the mantle it's kind of as part of it is also due to the earth changing shape slightly apparently the earth is still rebounding after the last ice age so when the glaciers retreated across the continents the the land is moving up from the, having the weight of ice on it and that is changing the shape of the earth and it's still doing that even after thousands of years but it is changing more at the moment due to uh human cause climate change this is a paper published in the journal science advances a paper by nasa scientists it was published on 8th of april 2016 and they calculated the effect of of the um the melting ice sheets effectively so essentially what they're doing they're looking at they've got nasa has some satellites called um grace as a pair of satellites that what they do is they kind of follow each other around and they look at the distance between the satellites and that changes according to changes in the earth's gravity and from that they measure the fluctuations in the earth's gravity and that's mostly affected by the movement of water and that sort of thing and what they they've tracked it down to the movement as i said of the melting ice cap so um, Greenland apparently ha- loses an average of 272 trillion kilograms of ice a year 
Uh, West Antarctica loses 124 trillion kilograms of ice a year, and East Antarctica gains about 74 trillion kilograms of ice a year. So you've got basically ice moving around all over the Earth, and this is affecting the shape of the Earth. It's affecting where the mass is, and so it affects the gravity of the Earth. And apparently it affects where the, the pole is going. So um, previously, you know, last century, apparently it had been kind of heading towards, uh, where was it? It was heading towards Hudson Bay in Canada, Oh. And now it's done a, a dramatic turn around year 2000, did a dramatic turn. Now it is drifting along the prime meridian around zero degrees longitude towards the United Kingdom. Um, and yeah. So the UK is going to be the North Pole soon. Well, unless it shifts again. Well, okay. So this again sounds quite dramatic. It does sound like a big thing. But how fast is it moving is perhaps the question that you should be asking. Okay. It's moving at 20 centimeters a year. <laughs> So, so when you say it's heading to the UK, yeah, you're, they you're have drawing these, a really big. Arrow. That's the direction it's going, uh, and they do like when they. I've seen the diagrams on the website. They got like an arrow pointing at the UK, but yeah, twenty centimeters a year. Um, it's not going to be a huge effect. Apparently, it doesn't move. Yeah, so it doesn't move very fast, as you can imagine. This is about the Earth just kind of wobbling on its axis a little bit. Um, there are some people who've had kind of speculative, apocalyptic theories about the Earth's rotation flipping over and causing all kinds of turmoil but this is just kind of generally your your paperback books uh, that you yeah, shouldn't I'm not, believe I'm not exactly sure what <laughs> like what damage it could possibly do if the if you know the poles flipped over it's oh, like well everything would kind of move around a bit you know all that ice we're talking about would kind of shuffle um, apparently there has been um, between 790 and 810 million years ago it's possible that the the pole has moved in that time pole moved by about 55 degrees which is quite a lot um, and they may happened twice in that time this is like some sort of looking at the physical evidence of, of movements in the past but there's no evidence that it's ever moved any more than that and it hasn't really happened again so yeah it's unlikely that it's going to be a cataclysmic reversal of the earth's rotation however it is changing. It is evidence of the effect that we're having on, on the planet and just more um, demonstration of the power of climate change, I guess. Not in a good way.
Agricultural crop plants have been specifically bred by humans for thousands of years to increase harvest yields, basically, is mm. the reason, and because we like things to taste nice. so we And look pretty. Well, yeah, most of our crops don't look that pretty, though. Um, mm. But but in <laughs> in most cases, they are unrecognisable compared to what the wild parent plants look like. Um, so selective breeding has given us, for example, grain crops that hold onto their seeds longer so they can be harvested all at once, um, you know, using a m- machinery, yeah. uh, rather than all falling on the ground, where, you know, wild plants generally drop their seeds randomly to increase the chances that one will germinate and uh, mm-hmm. and grow. But yeah. obviously crop plants, we don't want them to do that. So we've we've selected them to not do that. Um, so choosing plants with larger fruit or other edible parts like tubers has meant that we can grow more food from fewer actual plants, which means less work for us because we're inherently lazy people. Um, and this has basically all been possible by observing which plants are the most productive and using them to breed successive generations of, of uh, crops. Um, so that's been relatively slow. So as I said, it's taken thousands of years to get most of the plants that mm-hmm. we have now. Um, but obviously better understanding of plant biology has allowed plant breeders to hybridize plant varieties. So they take, you know, two closely related plants and, and cross-pollinate them and, and grow a, a new plant, which usually gives a boost in productivity. So there's this thing called the hybrid effect, uh, which means that hybrid plants are more productive for that one okay. generation, yeah. usually, and then they peter off and the successive generations from those same plants generally don't have the same uh, boost in productivity. Okay. Is it like how um, uh, crossbreed dogs generally are healthier than yeah, your purebred yeah. kind of Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly yeah. the same effect. Um, okay. So all the good genes seem to sort of bubble to the surface when you cross them over. Um, and there's there's various reasons for that. But but then the successive generations are often not um, okay. as healthy. Um, so uh, towards the end of the 20th century, we had a better understanding of genetics, which enabled plant breeders to isolate specific genes and introduce them into crops directly. So they could just say, oh, we found this gene for, you know, herbicide resistance, for mm-hmm. example, which mm-hmm. actually came from a... A soil bacteria, um, and then they introduce that into plants, then the plants are resistant to herbicides, yep. for instance. Um, so one method of being able to do this involved um, the use of various strains of bacteria, mostly agrobacterium, which are capable of inserting genetic material into plants by themselves. Uh, so there's a plant disease called crown gall, which um, results in sort of lumpy growth of plants when mm-hmm. this uh, bacteria called Agrobacterium tumefaciens <laughs> inserts DNA into plant cells and it changes the way the plant cells grow. So it actually gets expressed in the plant cells and they get these weird galls or, you know, I, I guess the, I guess the, they're the plant equivalent of, of a tumor. Right. Yep. Um, so, uh, by changing the DNA that the bacteria inserts into plants, plant breeders have been able to introduce new genes into plants. So this is one of the ways that you can genetically modify plants is by using these bacteria. Um, and they've, you know, given plants beneficial properties. Well, beneficial for agriculture anyway. Yep. So things like pest and disease resistance and things like that. Um, so these new crops widely regarded or widely known as uh, GM or genetically modified crops. 
And some people think they should be labelled because they've got these foreign, so-called foreign genes have been inserted into these plants. So some people think, oh, well, we should label them because that's, that's you know, it's not a natural thing to have these foreign genes in the plants. Um, but uh, a group of researchers looking at plant genetics published a paper last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States that may challenge that perception of what natural might actually mean. So Tina Kint and her team observed DNA in cultivated sweet potato that originates from agrobacterium. So these sections of DNA have mm -hmm. come from agrobacterium. They're expressed in the sweet potato, the cultivated sweet potato, but they're not found in the wild versions of these sweet potatoes. Oh, interesting. So they've, at, at some point in the last few thousand years since people have been growing sweet potatoes, these genes have been selected by humans and gone, oh, yeah, well, these, these potatoes are better for whatever reason. Um, and But that DNA itself, they have specifically shown, came from agrobacterium by itself in the wild. So are they still the same species as the wild ones? Yes. Right, but they've just acquired, right. yeah, acquired these genes from the bacteria um, all on their own. So that basically shows that humans selected these varieties of sweet potato that contain the new genetic material over plants that didn't have that genetic material. So for some reason, people have gone, oh, these are better potatoes, sweet potatoes, than the, the wild versions. So what they've basically shown is that uh, transfer of genes from one organism to another is not unusual in nature. It happens. And that, in fact, transgenic food crops have been in human diets for centuries already, uh, long before we actually started doing it ourselves. I think, therefore, I am. That's the only thing I can think of to say. So a little while ago, I spoke about Tesla's Model 3 car, um, but this week I'm going to talk about another Model 3. Um, it's Sin 3.0. Is this also done by some mad billionaire genius? It is also put out by a mad billionaire genius. Excellent. Craig Venter. Yeah, so it's the latest venture of the synthetic biology lab, the J. Craig Venter Institute. Um, some people might be familiar with this guy, Craig Venter. He is synonymous with um, progress and 
biotechnology and fancies himself the father of genetic engineering. Have not you guys not heard? innovation, though, because that's that's the preserve of Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> he was he had the he ran the rival human genome project that he I think Sick was the first genome, and people said, "Whose genome was it?" And he says, "I'm not telling," and everyone could guess. It was him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he. He was involved. He, he was actually involved in the um, international project, the Human Genome Project, for a while. Yeah. Um, but then um, he, yeah, it turns out they didn't do exactly what he wanted them to do. Yeah. And so he's like, "This is taking too long. You're not doing what I want to do. You're not using my genome. I'm going to pack up and yeah. do another human genome sequence using shotgun." gene sequencing and he did it and it wasn't as effective but it did come out first yeah so he was like yes yes so he's a maverick playing by his own rules he likes to think of himself as a maverick (laughs) absolutely um he was also involved in the global ocean sampling where he just cruised around on a yacht for years um sampling the ocean (laughs) sampling the ocean um and then sequencing Jam jar over the side. Yeah, yeah, jam jar jars over the side, and then sequencing everything that came out of the jam jars. Okay. Yeah. So he's 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 into big data. He's into you know bioinformatics. He's yep. he's really you know a father of father of biotechnology. He's he's a Bond villain. Yeah. He does sound like a Bond villain. He's yeah. a little bit of a Bond villain. Um, if you if you're listening, Craig Bender, I don't really think you're evil. Thank you. Can I just say that? <laughs> Whereas Elon Musk sounds more like Iron Man. Yeah. 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 So if, Are we if, choosing sides <laughs> in our man billionaire geniuses? I think so. Right. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, the big news from the Institute, Craig Venter's Institute, is that they've been successful in creating a reproducing living organism with as few genes as possible. So this new microbe, dubbed GCVI-SYN 3.0, is pretty much a new organism Um and as it stands, it has um, a very minimal code for life. So um, it, yeah, it, it hasn't existed before. Someone has artificially created its genetic code and put it into an organism and now it's reproducing. So they, so they started from scratch. They started from scratch. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. they would have like had a template of other bacteria and stuff. They, had, they had a template of another bacteria, but they, they created each of the genetic parts. The genes, parts. yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, this is clearly not the, the first one they've done. The 3.0 kind of gives that away. No. So they actually did two before that, um, but this is the first one that's come out that's had less genes um, within it than any known living organism. Okay. Yeah. So that's sort of why what they're sort of celebrating. Um, now I'm sure many people would be wondering what it looks like, what the newest organism on earth looks like. Um, it, it, like I said, it has the fewer than few genes. Um, it has about 473 genes. So just for comparison, humans have somewhere between in the region of 22,000 genes, which is more than a chicken. If you're wondering, (laughs) I was, I was wondering that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which has 17,000 genes, um, but less than uh, a grape, which has 30,000 genes. So before you get too cocky about how many genes humans have, yeah, think yeah, about the if grape. You made, if you made wine out of me, it would taste terrible, <laughs> let's be honest. Whereas chicken wine. <laughs> chicken wine would taste even worse. Yeah. <laughs> Other info. Um, so how many genes does this one have? Sorry. I, I... 473. Okay. So not many. Not many. In fact, less than any other organism on 
our wonderful planet. Which kind of makes sense because, like, there's a lot of um, junk DNA, I suppose, or other, you know, bits and pieces that we've accumulated over the the billions of years. That's right. And if you're designing one from scratch, you might leave out some of those bits, I imagine. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so it also has a doubling time of 180 minutes. If you're curious, that's how long it takes to double itself. Um, and okay, so that's actually that's longer than Batman v Superman, the, <laughs> the recent blockbuster movie we were just talking about. Don't, don't double that. Um, and interestingly, as far as the researchers currently know, 149 of its genes have a completely unknown function. So Craig Venter owns up to the fact that he doesn't know what 149 of these genes do. So if they if they put all of those genes in there on purpose, why did they put them in? Because it was the only way they could get that organism to function. Right. Ah. So they, they just had to keep chucking just, things in. Until, yeah. It's kind of like building yeah. a car by just throwing parts under the bonnet and hoping yeah. that it'll drive in the end. Put another wheel on. Yeah. See if that yeah. works. See if that works. So its its nearest um, its nearest natural competitor is the myco mycoplasma genitalium, which is actually a bacterium that infects the human urinary and genital tracts. Um, and it's got about, yeah, it's got 52 more genes than it does. Right. Yep, yep. Um, so because they built this from scratch, does it actually do anything? Do they know that it – does it do anything yeah, other than Yeah, can it infect leave? someone's genital organisms? <laughs> well – no, I mean, all it can do at this stage is sit in a very expensive Petri dish with very specialised um, food and media for it um, and not really do much. Um, but there there are a couple of reasons to sort of um, be excited about this, um, this new discovery in synthetic biology. Um, so it, it might change up how researchers use biotechnology because there's now potential there's this potential to possibly be designing new organisms. So instead of having to edit an already written book, you can write the book yourself pretty much. At least that's what Craig Venter is telling us all because, you know, he thinks he might yeah, be but God. Look, editing's a lot easier than writing, I've got to say. That's that's what a lot of people <laughs> are saying. That's, that's what a lot of people are saying. Instead of having, yeah. So um, there's a new technology called CRISPR, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've, both heard of, um, which allows researchers to sort of go into DNA that is already in living systems and um, sort of edit the code to, yeah. to come up with new... To tweak it. To tweak it, yeah. So I guess in the scientific community, people are like, well, if we've already got CRISPR and we can sort of just edit things that are already written in nature, then mm, like synthetic biology and creating it all from scratch, like why do we have to reinvent the wheel, Venter? Well, because he's a maverick, he's out there. Yeah, he's doing his own rules. And if you create, if you create the organism yourself from scratch, then it, it does your bidding. Is, <laughs> yeah. is the way these things work. It's, you know? This is how you build minions. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so long as you provide it with the very expensive media that it has to. Oh yeah. That it yeah. has to live on. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, be that as as it may, um, what this little artificial organism might do is help us understand some of our of life's most fundamental processes more completely. Um, so, I guess under, an understanding of what our first common ancestor was and um, what uh, the most simplest, most minimalistic organism, um, without, like you say, Chris, any of those weird bits of natural evolution that have sort of you know, crept into our DNA, what the fundamental parts um, that is needed for life are, 
And as, as well as Tio said, by, by throwing parts at it and seeing which bits are necessary, yeah. Yeah. Um, and most importantly, what the hell those 149 essential genes actually actually do, the genes that they don't know of. It's mind-boggling, though, when you say that thing about, you know, we understand our common ancestors because all life on Earth, we presume, has a common ancestor except for this. Yeah, it's it's the first one that isn't related to us in any way. That's right. Well, That's- third. Third. Well. Number three. 3.0. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.